Turn to two places. One, uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, and the other, uh, Luke chapter 13. And while you're finding it, I'll catch you up on what we've been doing this summer and what we're going to do tonight. Uh, This summer we're doing a series called A Glossary of Grace, uh, wherein we're taking a week to look at a different word or theological concept or, if you will, doctrine that all sort of falls or falls under the umbrella of grace. Grace is God's undeserved gift that He gives us in the person of Jesus that includes His uh, declarations that makes us right, but also all His work that He does in our lives. And we're looking at different aspects uh, of that this summer, and sort of one at a time. So uh, thus far... We have looked at, uh, and help me out if you remember these, uh, we've looked at grace, just generally speaking. We've looked at regeneration, how God brings uh, us to life. We've looked at propitiation, um, a fancy word for substitutionary atonement, a fancy word for how God forgives us. Uh, We've looked at justification, and we've looked at adoption. Those are the five we've done so far, and... In order, and today we're going to look at repentance, and uh, where some of the, all the other words we looked at uh, may be new or odd to some of us. Most of them aren't necessarily offensive, um, but with the word repentance, we run into a word that may just by nature uh, today be guilty by association. Um, you know, of all the words we're going to do this summer, this will be the only word that you might see uh, see on a street sign at a protest. And uh, the guilt by association might come from uh, those who only know this word from people who seem to be angry. Um, and so it's possible that if, if it's not you, then other people that you know, they may only know this word in association with people that they think are really angry, really mean, really ignorant. And really, really want people to sort of buy into their own pet behavior or their own pet issue. Uh, And what I want to do today is argue not only that repentance needs to be a part of our lives if we're Christians, but that it's uh, it's not just a part of our lives, it's sort of the heartbeat of what it means to live in a relationship uh, with God. I'm just going to make a real quick argument. This is a very quick argument for the importance of, of this word. Uh, and, you know, some words we just sort of let go because they're, they lose their meaning or they lose their significance. Uh, but some words are worth fighting for and fighting for a right understanding of them. And I want to do that with the word repentance. Uh, and I'll just give a, a quick reason for this. And uh, you don't have to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 4... Um, verse 17. After Jesus has been born, his background's been given, after he's grown up, after he's uh, been baptized, after he's been tested in the wilderness, Jesus begins his ministry. And his first public words in ministry, chapter 4, verse 17, are these. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus' first word in public ministry that we have recorded in Matthew is repent. And if you think that's an outlier, sort of odd, um, then um, you turn to Mark, and you find a very similar thing happen. Jesus, again, begins his public ministry, and the first thing he says in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, is, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, 
repent and believe in the gospel. So repentance is important enough to Jesus that he begins his public ministry to the world with this word, with this command, that God is now at work and present, and the proper way to relate or to begin the relationship to God as king is to change and to reorient ourselves to him. So there you go. That's my quick argument for why we should... uh, work with the doctrine of repentance because it was important to Jesus. And uh, I'll make a bigger argument for it as we go along. So let's start in Jeremiah chapter 2. I'm just going to read two verses here. Verses 12 and 13. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. They've hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. And now let's turn over to Luke 13. And uh, read verses 1 to 9. Alright. There was some present... At that very time, who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices? And he, this is Jesus, answered them, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, unless, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then the next story. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I found none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure, and then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. All right, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me if you like, and then we'll jump in. Uh, Good Father, we pray you show us great things in your law. Uh, It's a tough topic tonight, one that calls us to change. And uh, it's been said that many of us would rather change than die. Uh, die than change, and I, I think that's true. So uh, convince us not only that this is required, uh, but that this is good. And that uh, living a life with you, even if it requires change, is better than the alternative. Uh, and help us desire it, because uh, we desire you above all things. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Alright, so uh, starting in the Jeremiah text, we're, we're sort of working on a diagnosis here for why repentance is necessary, why this is even a topic in Scripture, why it's required. And uh, the first verse, verse 12, sort of sets the scene. It's the scene, it doesn't seem like it, but it's the scene of a, of a lawsuit. It's, uh, it's law and order with the, the music in the background. Uh, what God is doing here is the God of all creation is calling all of creation to witness. He's calling the heavens and the earth and everything to witness this lawsuit. Uh, so they are, they are witnesses to basically his people's apostasy, to their unfaithfulness. And he says, my people. These are the people that he has lovingly pursued, that he has uh, ransomed, that he's redeemed at, at great cost to himself, that he's cared for. And uh, what's expected of them is loving loyalty. They're expected to be faithful back to him. 
because he's been faithful to them. And he says they've committed two evils. Now, of course, they've committed a lot of evils, but he boils it down and narrows down everything to the very heart of the issue. And the very heart of the issue is the people of Israel, his people, have done two things. First, they've forsaken him. That is, they've turned their backs on him. Uh, Instead of being loving and loyal to him, they've abandoned him and chased other things. Uh, They loved other things. And specifically what they've loved more than anything else is themselves. They've hewed out cisterns for themselves. So uh, to summarize it, the, the core issue here is very simple. They've turned from relying on God to relying on themselves. They've gone from seeking life in Him to seeking to do life on their own. Uh, And this is the nature, the very heart of what the Bible calls sin. You go all the way back to the very beginning of the story in the Bible, and this is the heart of it. That we desire to live life apart from God because we want to be in charge. That uh, the nature of most sin is self-serving autonomy. We want to be the heart. We want to be the center. We want things to revolve around us. We want God to. We want God in the equation, but we want God to give us what we want. We want to call the shots, and we want God to enable us. Um, and so the outcome, according to these texts, is a, a, a turn not just from God to self, but a turn from the fullness of life we have. He is the fountain of living waters to uh, living a life of scarcity because try as we may we can't make life work the way we want it to it's why we're often frustrated and angry we have great plans for how things should fit together but they just won't hold we have these cisterns or wells if you would that just keep springing leaks so we expect them to hold life and joy for us as we make this life that we think is going to be perfect and it just doesn't work And uh, so this is God's diagnosis of his people, and it's what's true of us, that we are those who regularly turn from God to rely on ourselves. And uh, and in Luke 13, what Jesus is doing is uh, really challenging the people that listen, and I think us as well, to consider if the shoe fits for us as well. That if we are those that abandon God forsake him and and uh hew out our own sister and try to live got life on our own and uh, if we need to repent so uh really interesting setting here um in this text starting with verse one um i'm in the wrong chapter that makes no sense give me one second so in Luke, this doesn't happen regularly in the Bible. It's not like something terrible happens every moment. But there are some people that show up, and they tell Jesus about these Galileans. That's from the area where he's from, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. If that sounds like gory and bloody and wrong, that's right. This was not supposed to happen. Pilate was the ruler of the area, and uh, this would have been considered not only a tragedy and a travesty, but a blasphemous, terrible act. Now, a couple things about this. This is called an atrocity report, and, uh, and it's not quite clear whether or not this actually happened. We actually don't know if this happened. There's actually no proof historically this happened. And in some ways, that's actually not even the point. Uh, this could be true, or it could be a rumor, or it could even be a test, the way they were testing Jesus. But the point is, this was plausible. Okay, You're living in a part of the world where the people were under Roman oppression and Pilate didn't have a good handle on the people and their customs. And he could have done something terrible like this. And it's almost like uh, if you lived in Afghanistan and you heard reports of a drone strike in a neighboring village that killed a bunch of innocent children. And you would think... That's completely plausible. Or it's like you lived in Pittsburgh and you heard about a DUI and a car crash that killed an innocent family and you would think, 
That's completely plausible. So they, they tell Jesus about this event that may or may not have happened. And what do you think they expect? When you tell people something like this, what do you expect? You expect righteous anger. You expect judgment. Uh, you know, the people who believed this was true, they were thinking death to Pilate. May God judge Pilate. And they're expecting Jesus as a righteous teacher to say something like that. And what Jesus does instead is completely shocking. He says, uh, you think they're worse than anybody else? You repent. And uh, he goes on uh, to follow that up in verses 4 and 5 and says, Hey, uh, remember those 18, and this did happen, remember those 18 people on who the, whom this tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Uh, what, but, but, what, <laughs> what Jesus is saying is, you're really concerned about these people Pilate killed? What about those 18 people that God killed? You know, if a tower fell on someone, it's sort of an act of God. What about those people? And then he ends up saying, no, the point is, you need to repent. Um, so Jesus here isn't trying to shock people. He isn't trying to outrage them. He's making a point that everyone needs to repent. Um, and what he does here is not just, he's not just seeking to offend. He's not just seeking to shock. He's actually sort of undoing some of their faulty logic. And I, I think it helps us. So uh, in verses 2 and 4, uh, Jesus asks them, Do you think those people, whether it's the Galileans who may or may not have died, or the people in Siloam in whom a tower fell, he asked, Do you think they were worse sinners? Do you think they were worse offenders? And uh, because of the way they suffered. And uh, the assumption behind this question is, yes, you do. You think they suffered terribly because they were terrible sinners, and they got what they deserved. And I think his bigger point is coming in a moment, but this is one warning for all of us that, are, that sometimes uh, it's really easy for us people, to, for, for people that consider themselves good, to look at other people when they're suffering, especially if they're people that we know are bad, and say they, they deserved it. They're getting what they deserved. This is really innate. It's really human nature for us to do this, to look at people that are living differently than us or outside of us who are really suffering. We may be saying, well, they're getting what they deserve. And, uh, and this is what they're doing, uh, these people, and it's often what we do as well. And I think Jesus gives us here a reason to be really cautious and not easily tie a one-to-one relationship between someone's sin and their suffering. The world is full of suffering. The world is full of brokenness. The world is full of injustice. And uh, innocent people suffer all the time. Um, a, a good example of this is a friend of mine. Uh, it's actually a friend of Charles. It's Dave Baggett, uh, someone he knows. Uh, a friend of mine from college who, uh, during a time of his life, couldn't get a job. He moved back to this small town near where I grew up. And one summer, uh, we were catching up, and I asked how things had been. He's like, well, you won't believe it, but within a week, these two things happened. I was working on this house, and I was taking down the ceiling, and a brick fell out of the ceiling and hit me right in the forehead and knocked me out. And I was like, do what? Like, bricks shouldn't be hiding in the ceiling to begin with. Uh, so he gets slammed in the head by a brick and knocks him out. And I was like, that's terrible. He's like, that wasn't the worst thing that happened that week. Uh, I was like, what happened? He's like, later in the week I got struck by lightning. I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I got struck. I was like, I ran out to Walmart. I was in Walmart. I was walking across the parking lot. And out of nowhere, I'm laying on the ground. 
<laughs> and I, I walk back in, dazed and confused, and my wife's staring at me. She's like, you just got hit by lightning. He's like, do what? It's like, you just got struck by lightning. Um, so he tells his dad, and his dad, who's not a Christian, says, son, I think God might be angry with you. Uh, no, sort of funny, but Dave like, knew, like, I don't think so. Like, I haven't, I mean, they would say, like, I'm a sinner. I don't live life perfectly. But this week wasn't particularly worse than any others. Uh, Life is weird like this. And bad things happen to people all the time. The world's full of suffering and justice. And righteous people suffer. And, you know, the ultimate, there's two great examples in the Bible of how you can't draw a one-to-one relationship between someone's life and their suffering. One, Job, and then two, Jesus, the most righteous man that ever lived. They both suffered terribly, and it's not that they deserved it. What Jesus is saying here, in effect, to these people is, hey, hey, stop worrying about all those bad people out there and look at yourself. You need to repent. Stop worrying about those people out there, those terrible bad people that you think are terrible offenders. Don't, don't preoccupy yourselves with them. You need to look at your own heart. You repent. And I think Jesus is also sort of subtly highlighting in some ways how uh, we not only sort of uh, fall prey to this faulty logic, but also have sort of a false righteousness. It, it sort of works like this, verse 1. Um, these people think... You know, we're on the right side. Pilate's on the wrong side. He's the bad guy. We're the good guy. We're on the right side of the cause. And we do this in America, and I think everyone does this. We identify with a cause. And it doesn't matter currently whether you're on the left side or the right side. It's the conservative side or the uh, progressive side of whatever cause is in fashion at the moment, whether it's politics or guns or rights or whatever. We often tend to think, if I'm on the right side, I'm right. And they're wrong. And that's all I need to be right. That's what makes me right. That's what validates me. That's what justifies me. That's what makes me right with God. And, uh, and, and Jesus' simple answer here is, you need to repent. <laughs> like We all need to look at our hearts. Having, having a right view on any one issue doesn't make you right. We need to look deeper. And that just because you might be righter than someone else doesn't ultimately make you right. You need to look at your heart and be willing to repent. And he goes on and just makes it really clear that this is, this is real. He says in verse 3 and in verse 5, Unless you repent, you'll perish. Uh, unless you change, uh, judgment is coming. And, uh, and what Jesus is saying, you know, this sounds really judgmental to some people, like, oh, this is horrible. He's saying this to everyone, you know, to everybody. Uh, we need to look at our hearts and consider how we're rebellious against God and how we need heart change. How we need to turn and seek after Him and seek to rely on Him. Um, it's, it's really hard to do this. By nature, we are, are prone to think we're right and we're really slow to acknowledge when we're wrong. And I've got sort of a funny story to highlight this. Years ago, I was driving, riding with a friend from St. Louis to Nashville for a wedding, a good wedding. Uh, it was a good wedding. It was the wedding of a good friend. We were both in the wedding. And we're running behind. We had to get there in time to be part of the wedding party and all the preparations that um, were involved in that. And my friend and I had both driven this route multiple times. He was from Georgia. This is the way he went home uh, regularly. I had done this trip multiple times. And so maybe that's why this happened. We were just too lax and comfortable. But about four and a half, five hours outside of St. Louis, which is in Missouri, uh, as we're driving down the interstate, we both look up. And we didn't know we both saw it at the same time, but I saw it. I saw a sign that said, now entering Missouri. 
like we left Missouri. The route is Missouri, Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee. And we saw a sign that said, now entering Missouri. And after about, about 10 minutes later, about 10, about 10 minutes, 10 minutes after we saw the sign, my good friend says, you see that sign? Yeah, I saw that sign. <laughs> it was 10 minutes. Um, we didn't want to admit that we were that far wrong. We were like three hours wrong. We missed a turn three hours previously and finally saw a sign, but we didn't want to believe we were that wrong, that we were that far off. And we couldn't acknowledge it. We were so slow to acknowledge it. Uh, And I think that's the way we are about repentance. There may be signs in our lives that are pointing out, like, you are far off the course. There may be people in your life telling me, you didn't used to be like this. I'm not sure this is the way you're supposed to be living. But we don't want to hear it, and we don't want to admit it, and we don't want to stop and change because it's hard. We just want to keep thinking, if I keep going the way I'm going, it's going to work out. And the reality is you're getting further and further away from where you're supposed to be going. Um, where you're supposed to be going is described here in verses 6 and 9. And I'm going to do this really quickly. But uh, Jesus, Jesus doesn't end with just this stark call to repent. Instead, he sort of gives us a picture of what repentance is supposed to lead to and, uh, and why it's required. In verses 6 and 7, he tells this story about a man who has a fig tree planted in her vineyard, and he comes looking for fruit, and there's no fruit. A couple things about this that's really interesting. Uh, fig trees in this part of the world produce fruit. 10 months of the year. 10 months of the year, there should be figs on a tree. And uh, the figs in certain parts of the season are actually the color of the leaves. So a close inspection like the one you see happening here might be required. And, uh, And this guy's giving it the close inspection. He's looking carefully to see if there's fruit. But... Uh, this tree has now had like almost nine years after like six or seven years it should be bearing fruit it's had three years to produce fruit it's supposed to produce fruit ten months of the year the the owner has every reason to expect fruit and there's no fruit and his verdict is judgment tear it up, it's taking up space it's a fig tree, it's job is to produce figs and in some ways what Jesus is saying is our job to live in a relationship with God to produce this fruit glory for him, goodness for the world and oftentimes close inspection shows that we're not producing the kind of fruit we need to be and uh, the, the answer here is really, really good Really, it may not be what you, what you think um that uh, the life that God is looking for in us, that Jesus is uh, looking for in us, is not one of perfection. That's ultimately the goal, that we would be like Jesus, but a progress. Not one of uh, performance, but of being uh, related to Jesus in such a vital way that we slowly become more like him. That we bear out of the vital relationship with him the kind of fruitful vitality that Jesus himself had. So we have this beautiful, loving life like he had. Uh, and you can't manufacture this on your own. This is where the organic image is really important. Uh, you, you, you can't, we can't manufacture the things that God's after. And what God's after in our hearts is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, fruit of the Spirit. You can't make that happen. You can't make yourself do those things. Uh, it's an organic thing that comes out of the relationship you have with God. And you see that in verses 7 and 9. So last thing we're going to talk about right here. And uh, so he says to the vine dresser, look, three years I've been coming seeking fruit, cut it down. And, um, and the worker says, listen, uh, leave it alone this year. That phrase, leave it alone, is actually forgive it. Just 
have mercy on it for a year. And that's what God does. He doesn't give us what we deserve. And uh, let it alone this year, and I will, I will dig around it, and I'll put on manure. Let me go to work on it. And then if it should bear fruit, well and good. If not, you can cut it down. And this is not everything we need to know about the nature of faith and the work of God, but it's a picture in some ways of what we're talking about. That uh, the fruit God's looking for is nothing that we can produce on our own. It requires an external work on us by God. It involves Jesus, the one who died for us, connecting himself to us and he does that by our faith in him and then through that vital connection which we call union with christ he begins he doesn't just forgive us he does but he begins to produce in us this life this fruit so that we become like him we can't do it on our own and repentance is part of the process of constantly turning from ourself we're always trying to do two things whatever we want and to justify ourselves we turn from those processes to him for forgiveness, but also for the strength to live in Him and to be the kind of people we're supposed to be. Um, because we're not supposed to be able to do it on our own. It's by a connection with Him that we become like Him. All right. As we do from week to week, I will, uh, most of the time, I will field a question or two. I don't want to do too many of these tonight. But if you have a question about anything I just said, fire away. Yes. How would you compare confession and repentance? How would I compare compare confession and repentance? Okay, well, uh, I'll say a couple things about this. Uh, Three things. Two very shortly. Uh, One, an acknowledgement to everyone that currently goes to City Reformed. You're in the midst of a three-week miniseries on confession. You may have gotten that this past week. So everything I say, someone else may say. And that may be good or it might be boring. I don't know. Uh, Two, um, I forgot what the two was. So one and a half things. you know, con- confession. Well, the the two is I have a question in our questions that sort of gets close to this, and our small group questions that that borders on this. Um, yeah, I, I think confession is a important first step. One of the questions I have talks about. Ra- think it. I don't know if it's or not. I, I think the the beginning of discipleship of growing in a relationship with Jesus is knowledge of God, knowledge of self, and it's. Calvin writes, it doesn't necessarily depend which one comes first. But one thing about the, the knowledge of self, I think it really involves a radical objective knowledge of self. You've got to really be honest about yourself. And the reality is none of us want to really be honest about ourselves. Uh, we do a pretty good job of putting roofs over our heads and lenses over our eyes to give ourselves the best impression of ourselves. Um, and uh, confession is important if we really embrace it because it's being honest it's being honest with God it's being honest with others about ourselves and our failures so that's good I'm not sure you can get very far in repentance without confession but you can start confession and go nowhere after that you can confess things you can confess everything but not necessarily change you know and uh, so it's a good beginning but it's not it's, it doesn't go far enough so other questions? So what is the next step after confession? Oh, I'm not sure so much there are steps. But, you know, I would say that there are necessary ingredients. Um, you know, you're an engineer, computer scientist. 
Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I'm not sure this is as much like a step-by-step procedural thing as as much as this is like an ingredients and in a process you would do and 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 planting something really or you know it, this is a relationship i'll put it that way um but i think sort of the important ingredients are real honest confession uh, real grief over what you've done not just because it's wrong but because of how it's hurt the relationship um a, 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 a you know a genuine uh i think one of the things you want to you want as a christian is a genuine dislike or hatred of the things you've done not yourself that's what, that's what we often do. We hate ourselves because of our failures. We beat ourselves up. We heap shame on ourselves. Uh, we are supposed to, you know, that, that phrase which has been much mocked, uh, love the sinner, hate the sin, that, that needs to be applied to ourselves. Um, you know, God loves us, but we're supposed to hate the evil that we do for the damage it does both to God and to others. So despise the thing we do. And then out of love for God, seek to do seek to do differently but the repentance is not just turning from our sin which is despising it and denouncing it and confessing it but turning to god and i I think it's really important you know that's sort of the push part like the repulsion of that the pull part is the beauty of christ the forgiveness of christ the love of christ that all needs to pull us and uh and draw us in a way that uh, the love of Christ would actually inspire us and strengthen us to live differently. I talked about this in the spring semester. You, here, of course, weren't here. But it's really easy for us to short-circuit this. And what we often do is we do something we really know we shouldn't, and we beat the crap out of ourselves. If it's something that we really hate, we'll beat ourselves up. And we'll feel miserable. And we'll feel like, okay, now, and that's what some people call penance. We beat ourselves up. Now I'm miserable enough. I've paid for my sin. And because we feel so miserable and shamed and terrible, we seek relief. We seek to feel better. And where do you most often find relief and feel better? Whatever that terrible sin is that you love to do that just makes you feel terrible, you go right back to it. You have this built-in short-circuiting system. So, um, you know, this is often the case with, with sins of addiction. You're just like, I feel terrible. You beat yourself up. Now I feel worse. Go right back to it. Now I feel better. Now I feel terrible. And um, what breaks you out of that is a greater love. Um, something that captures your heart. Something that uh, lets you get, let go not only of the wrong you've done, but the shame of it as well and lets you know I love you and uh, inspires you to live differently and so that's the faith part of repentance that's really important you have to have something to grab a hold on that pulls you and inspires you and draws you in so hope that's helpful yeah uh, while I'm at it, I will give you a couple of resources for repentance. This is, I'm convinced, like I said, this is one of the more important aspects of the Christian life. Um, it, the, the word is so misused by so many people that it seems to be that, as it's used, that only the godless, horrible people out there are supposed to repent. That's the way it's used. Like terrible people that I wave signs at. You need to repent. We don't. Uh, and what I'm saying is repentance is a part of the Christian life. Martin Luther said that this is sort of uh, the, the, one of the most important parts of the Christian life. Uh, and I have here a little article from you for you. Anybody that wants it, it's like one page and a third called All of Life is Repentance. It's very simple and it just sort of helps us understand how we misunderstand it and how we should understand it. I've got 15 copies if anybody wants it. So these are here. If you want them, they'll be in the chair. Any last questions?
three, two, one. 